Hello, this is Steve Smith at WCG Patient Radio. I'm from the Patient Advocacy Department of WCG. We are a company that specializes in the ethical treatment of people in clinical trials and other solutions which bring safety and speed as well as ethics to help uh, address unmet medical needs. We're speaking today with Mark Dant, who is the father of a young man with rare disease. The rare disease we're talking about today is uh, mucopolysaccharidosis type 1, or otherwise known as MPS1. Um, And Mark Dant has a long uh, experience with uh, the diagnosis, which happened back when his son Ryan was a little boy, and the clinical trials which have ensued and how there was no clinical trial, and then then there were clinical trials eventually, and then there was eventually a treatment. And so we're going to ask him about that. And uh, also that Mark is the chairman of the Every Life Foundation for Rare Disorders, which is a not-for-profit group that gives patient, patients and patient advocates a voice on Capitol Hill, uh, which has made a big difference in the way drugs are developed in this country to speed things up. And he's also the executive director and founder of a not-for-profit focused on rare diseases called the Ryan Foundation, named after his son. So welcome, Mark. Thank you, Steve. It's always good to speak with a friend. Yes, we've been working together for a long time. In fact, um, we first went together to Capitol Hill on one of our first times we ever went there to speak to members of Congress uh, about rare diseases and what we thought the FDA needed to know. And they got us meetings with the FDA, and that was in the year 2000. And we found the FDA to be very open to our suggestions and We've watched the sophistication of the collaboration between patient advocates and the FDA and biotech grow over those decades. So it is nice to be together talking with you again. Can you tell us about the MPS disease that Ryan has and what that's all about? Sure. Uh, MPS, or mucopolysaccharidosis, as you mentioned, is a uh, a set of uh, lysosomal storage disorders. You think of the lysosome as uh, every every cell has a uh, stomach. The lysosome is basically the stomach of the cell. In the stomach of the cell, there are a myriad of, of different enzymes that are formed to break down certain proteins and help the body rebuild itself. If one of these enzymes is missing, that protein that should have been broken down stays and mires up the whole system. With MPS1, without treatment, the body stores all of this material uh, and eventually, uh, 10 to 15 years usually, uh, the body gives out. It's stored in the ligaments, the bones, tendons, heart valves, every cell of the body. Uh, so without treatment, uh, these children, uh, once born, ha- have no future. And uh, that brings the uh, most important part of our formula, which is finding treatment for the rare disease uh, person. So you you found out about... Ryan's diagnosis at a time, I understand, where there was no treatment. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, we actually had no idea Ryan was suffering from a disorder. Uh, my wife and I uh, had planned on having a large family. I wanted five. My my wife wanted three uh, children. So uh, Ryan was our first, happy, healthy, uh, born in 1988. At three and a half, we decided to put, to put him in a more of a structured daycare so that he could learn to get along with other children and uh, have a happy, happier uh, childhood. So uh, Jean took him to a preschool, pre-daycare physical with our pediatrician. He noticed that his head was too large, as was his 
liver and spleen. Uh, a very astute young pediatrician. So concerned about these uh, um, facts that he had found, he himself turned around and before Gene left his office, called the uh, geneticist in, at Dallas Children's, uh, who made an appointment within just a few weeks. We know now that that just doesn't happen. It's usually sometimes three to six months before a family can get in to see a geneticist, which is a horrible delay because, uh, as we know now also, diagnosis is the key to finding treatment or, or changing the future. Ryan went to the, the appointment with Gene, and uh, long story short, he was diagnosed at the age of three and a half with this disorder that uh, we were told. And I remember specifically asking the physician, uh, where are the treatments? He said, there are none. Uh, where are the scientists who are working on a treatment? He said, your son has a rare disorder. So rare, the government calls it an orphan disease. There just aren't very many scientists, if any, who are working on a treatment. And therefore, there are no companies who would develop a treatment because there was no model built for the company to, to have a, a profit. So we were basically told to take Ryan home and uh, be with him while we could because he wouldn't be with us uh, probably much more to the end of the decade. And so um, what did that do to your um, sort of family's view of what your plans were? Well, everything changed at that moment, everything. Literally, uh, we went home uh, yesterday. We still would think of it. We'd still think about what our plans would be for Ryan, and then tomorrow would become the biggest fear in our life. Everything changed. The first year, we did nothing other than try to treat Ryan like there was nothing wrong while he was away, and then wander around our own home at night, literally finding each other asleep on the floor, trying to sleep next to Ryan's bed night after night for a year. I can remember having this vision of what life could have been. I call it now wandering through the home that might have been because it never will be and still won't. But uh, we had lost all everything. The thought of high school graduations and Ryan dating, um, college, marriage, grandchildren, all of that had to be put to rest because all of those thoughts brought pain pain because there was no treatment. There was no hope. Yeah, so it's it's like a nightmare that you cannot wake up from. And it's a very horrible diagnosis. And when there's no treatment, you said it, yes. So what then happened that there is a treatment? And how did that happen? It's a wonderful story of partnerships and uh, the, the reality that, that giving up serves no purpose. That there are always roadblocks, but uh, with roadblocks and obstacles, there are ways around it with effort and partnership. After a year of, of literally laying on the floor like they, I talked about next to Ryan's bed, I, I went to the library because these are the horrible days before the Internet. And uh, I, I tried to learn everything I could on MPS and lysosomal storage disorders. I read the, every uh, uh, newspaper or, or magazine article and uh, text that had been written that I could find to try to bring my own personal knowledge up on what we were facing. They all said the same thing, that Ryan wouldn't live much longer than a decade. But I also read a book on nonprofits and fundraising. And after a year, uh, this started in 1992, we started a nonprofit, filed for it called the Ryan Foundation. And our objective was to raise funds for science, because in science we would find hope, 
and our only hope would come through treatment. So uh, we did start the Ryan Foundation with a bake sale that raised $342, which didn't seem like a much, and it isn't much, but it did provide hope. And it was from that moment on, we realized, you know, hope does make us feel better. And even if it doesn't come true, we can sure try. And so we had more and more and more fundraisers. And I looked literally internationally for a scientist who could perhaps take some of these funds and find hope for all those with MPS. And so um, you found Dr. Emil Kakis, who um, was, I believe, if I have this right, quietly working on a treatment for Ryan's disease, but he was running out of money. He was in a Quonset hut in the back lot of UCLA or something like that. Tell us about how that transformed into a treatment. Yes, it's uh, one of the series of miracles that happens, and I would believe this true on, on all drug development, that uh, certain points in time change all time and future. I uh, went to a international symposium of lysosomal storage disorders in Dusseldorf, Germany, and there I spoke to a, a renowned scientist named Roscoe Brady, who was working out of the NIH and, and uh, developed a treatment for the a disease called Gaucher. Now, Gaucher is a very similar disease to Ryan's in that it was and is a lysosomal storage disorder. He developed a treatment called enzyme replacement therapy. I asked him there after his presentation if it were possible for enzyme replacement therapy for MPS1. In a nice long chat, I actually showed him a video of Ryan playing baseball at the age of four. He was four at the time. Dr. Brady was a very kind man. But he told me we didn't have two things that we would need, which was uh, one, money. He said he would need a lot of money. And two was time, because Ryan was four at the time, and he knew it would take a long time to develop. But he did say it was possible. We then partnered with the National MPS Society and funded a symposium conference to bring in all the children with MPS across the nation, and scientists as well, in, in Orlando. And there I met one of the researchers I'd read about in the public library, Dr. Elizabeth Newfeld. And I told her about my conversation with Dr. Brady. Dr. Neufeld told me not only is it possible in her mind as well, but she knows of a former young student who was working on ERT, enzyme replacement therapy for MPS-1, in a literally World War II Qantas hut, wooden structure, behind the county hospital in Torrance, California, a branch of UCLA, UCLA Harbor Research Institute. The next morning, I called Dr. Kakis, and we formed a partnership. Every dollar we raised went to Dr. Kakis, to help him develop a treatment, and he did. Uh, December of 1997, the first person uh, was treated with ERT, and Ryan was the third person in the trial of 10. The results were almost immediate. Ryan, who was now eight weeks before his 10th birthday, received his first infusion on February 13, 1998. Within a few weeks, he himself actually looked in a mirror and, and saw that his stomach was reduced. He called me into his hotel. He had, it was a two-bedroom uh, hotel uh, room. Uh, and he was looking himself in the mirror after he stepped out of the bath. And he said, look at my tummy. Remarkable difference that science and patients and patient advocacy and industry, because a company was, would form called Biomarin with uh, a few individuals who brought in funds to help bring that trial forward. And the trial began and ended one year later. And so the FDA approved this drug in uh, what, what year? 
Well, uh, a second trial was called for after the first trial. Um, Biomarin then was, of course, capital strapped. So they, they looked for a partner and, and formed a 50-50 joint venture with uh, another company called Genzyme. Uh, Genzyme and Biomarin then brought the, the data forward in February of 2003. And in May 2003, uh, Aldurazyme was approved for treatment for MPS-1. Today, Aldurazyme is treating children and adults with MPS-1 in last count, 75 countries worldwide. Wow, this is amazing. And so it's not only that, um, I mean, it's quite, it's nice to hear his stomach was getting smaller, but what that really means is a lot of damaging effects were being slowed down or stopped. Absolutely. And these are it, it, these things which could have disfigured him. Yes. Go ahead. Yes, I was just saying, it, it stops the progression of the disease. So he's no longer storing that material that he'd been storing since birth. That's, that shows, again, how, how uh, with newborn screening, another init an initiative of uh, Every Life Foundation, um, newborn screening, MPS-1 now has been approved by the recommended uniform screening panel, the, f the federal panel, uh, for states to then approve to, uh, to test for MPS-1. Uh, the remarkable yes, part about that is we didn't know about MPS-1 for three and a half years. Had we known and there was a treatment, uh, Ryan's course of, of his disorder would have changed from the first point of therapy. Yeah, so that, that's newborn screening effort of the Every Life Foundation, that organization that you are chairman of that gives patients a voice on Capitol Hill. That newborn screening um, effort can bring um, many patients to their therapies when they're first born. And so that there aren't those years of progression. Time is so much of the essence. And I wanna also ask you about something relating to time of the essence, being of the essence. One of the patients in your community, you told me once, uh, had an IRB experience. And uh, you know, our company specializes in IRBs and for decades has done the IRB projects for companies that are gonna run clinical trials in order to standardize it and make sure there are professionals who know, know how to do uh, the ethical review of the clinical trial itself. What's going to happen to patients in the trial? Is it ethical? Is it proper? Is it before the patients are treated? And because our company specializes in it, I've seen these professionals do their work quickly with dispatch and with great care for safety. Um, we know that a lot of the large academic medical centers want to do their own IRBs and are much more perhaps bureaucratically cumbersome because of the way a complex hospital works. And they do a lot of excellent work at those big ac academic centers. But I believe that somebody, you know, somebody from our community once told us they had gone in for um, a subsequent clinical trial to slow down cognitive decline through an intrathecal therapy that puts the enzyme replacement right into the cerebral spinal fluid. And there was a delay, isn't that right, of almost a year while the Academic Center tried to figure out how to get the IRB done on this strange and new trial for such a small population. And so that's Absolutely. a year of cognitive decline. Is that, am I saying that right? I heard something like that. Yes, Steve, you, you nailed it. And this happens consistently across our nation. You, you mentioned the importance of academic medical centers in, in research. Absolutely an imperative. Such great science occurs in the academic setting. But fr frankly, uh, sometimes uh, science and scientists, and most importantly, institutions, don't understand the importance of speed. 
the FDA has, 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 has the approach of efficacy, safety first, and then efficacy. The patient community might add speed. Of course, of course, we want it to be safe. Of course, we need it to work. But we also need time. The most difficult thing for any of us to get back, we can never get it back, is lost time. In the instance you speak of, I, I know of a family who was waiting for more than a year that uh, watching their, their son, uh, having experienced cognitive decline for, for several years, waiting for treatment, that a year went by. The treatment did start, proved to be efficacious, proved to be safe, and yet that year was lost because of paperwork. Academic institutions uh, have to address uh, um, these issues internally, understanding that the, the slowness of an IRB review um, does lose something, lose something we can never yes. get back, and that's time. And we, it, it may sound radical or even naive of me, but one of the things that has been proposed and frequently mentioned over the recent years um, when people are talking and writing about this is the concept that we need of a centralized IRB, where a, a company that's going to do a clinical trial does their IRB in some centralized way that is also then automatically approved by the hospitals. And people who know the academic medical center world might laugh or they wouldn't think it's truly funny, but they'd think I was being naive to say we need centralized IRB. But if you're a family with a person who has a progressive disorder where you can't wait, that is not uh, in any way out of the um, realm of possibility. It has to start happening. And we have to consider anything short of that to be the unacceptable status quo. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we, we often hear in companies and in hospitals about patient uh, centricity, focusing first and foremost on the patient. What are the patient's needs? Um, it becomes lip service unless, unless we actually put something into action. We speak off, we, I spoke earlier about time. If, if we know that, that um, the loss cannot uh, be brought back a lot if treatment is not given at, at the earliest onset, then why are, we, why are we wasting time and not having a, a centralized IRB? Standards are usually the same, if not always, with the safety uh, the most imperative. And yet, we keep talking about it, and in our academic uh, partnerships, we, we aren't working forward in, in finding a centralized IRB system. This could save us dramatic time and, and save and change lives. And isn't that what we're all about anyway? Yes, absolutely. And so I think that kind of complex problem, um, the way it gets solved, and I know you've solved some of these complex problems in collaboration with others, um, and your organization that you are chairman of, the Every Life Foundation for Rare Disor Diseases, Every Life Foundation for Rare Diseases, uh, was founded by uh, Dr. Emil Kakis, who you've mentioned. You're the chairman of the board, and they do one of the key parts of making that kind of change. That's give patients a voice on Capitol Hill, but also work hard with biotech companies, with the FDA, and with researchers in collaboration to figure out what exactly can we do. Rather than just complain, it's more about let's find the solutions to these problems. And so you have the political advocacy, and then it also is a medical problem. It's a scientific problem, and it's a money problem to make sure there's enough investment in these orphan diseases. So um, tell us about the Every Life Foundation briefly. We're about to run out of time, but 
you're having just had your 10 year anniversary. Is that right? Yes, it, it's a remarkable um, organization because it, it it addresses the unmet need, just just like great science does. The, the Every Life Foundation is dedicated basically to advancing the development of treatment and diagnostic opportunities for, for rare disease patients through science-driven public policy. You know, we, we don't speak for patients. We provide the training and education and resources and opportunities to make their voices heard. Just as we are speaking now, uh, the voice of my son is, is, in, is so vital in changing tomorrow. By activating the, the patient voice, we truly believe we already have changed change public policy and in, in fact, uh, save lives. There are multiple uh, results in the past 10 years. All of this came from the vision of Dr. Emil Kakis. He, he understood the unmet need of policy how policy can, can move advanced treatment, take away the obstacles the FDA faces themselves. The FDA absolutely are our partners. Without the FDA, we, we can't find a treatment we will not treat. But there are, are obstacles in their way. Sometimes it's their own obstacles. Sometimes it's a policy obstacle. The patient voice changes all that. Again, focusing on the needs of the patient. Yes, and so your organization bringing together a lot of patient advocates, and other organizations have done this too. Um, so it's you know so many people collaborating. We've gotten um, new legislation. This may sound like it's distant from medicine, but the PADUFA five laws. If people look those up, they could look up breakthrough therapy designation, um, accelerated review pathways. Uh, we have 21st century cures, which brings a lot of that together. Those are the things which created the um, the world we have today in pharmaceutical drug development and has made it much faster. So I, I think, you know, it's really nice to see the work that you and Dr. Kakis and others have done to bring that world we want, which is where we can do things faster, but we can also do them safely. And that's that's very much by because of advocacy, modern science and computing and you know, the world we live in today. So Absolutely. thank you, Mark. It's wonderful to talk with you. I wish we could go on and on, but we want to, in the interest of time, um, sign off and encourage our listeners to go to um, everylife.org. Is that the URL for the Every Life Foundation? Everylifefoundation.org. It's uh, everylifefoundation.org. Yeah, everylifefoundation.org. And um, you'll see a lot of information there. If you want to come for Rare Disease Week at the end of February, if you're a patient advocate, Every Life Foundation brings people to Capitol Hill, makes the appointments for you, teaches you about the current priorities and talking points, and it's just a wonderful experience. End of February, 2020. Absolutely. One quick quick plug on that. Uh, you know, as you've been there as well, Steve, watch what has occurred. Uh, we're hoping to bring 800 uh, families, patients from across the nation to Rare Disease Week. We have 49 of the 50 states uh, already represented. We need some representatives from Wyoming. So if I could plug one state, if you have a rare disorder in Wyoming and you're interested in coming and telling your story in your own words to your representatives on Capitol Hill, reach out to the Every Life Foundation and uh, we could probably help you out. Well, that's a wonderful call to action. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for talking to us today. It's a real pleasure to talk with you as always. And I know, know our listeners are going to enjoy listening to this podcast. So this Thank is you so much, Steve. With this is Steve Smith with WCG Patient Radio speaking with Mark Dance, the chair of the Every Life Foundation, 
and the Ryan Foundation, and he's talking to us about MPS diseases. Thank you.